Station. I can't get no call to action, but I try and I try and I try. Hello and welcome to Call to Action, the go-to podcast for anyone trying to make sense of the world of marketing, advertising and beyond. In an industry that is a minefield of utter bollocks, we aim to capture our heroes and allies from the front line to have a chinwag with. It's like Pokemon Go, with the single but vital exception that it's not a short-term bandwagon of shite. It's brought to you by Gasp and I'm Giles Edwards. Today I've caught Professor Karen Nelson-Field. One of the industry's most respected researchers, Karen is hell-bent on fighting the broken media ecosystem as founder and CEO at Amplified Intelligence. Professor, author, and an alumni of the world-renowned Ehrenberg Bass Institute, her research into social media marketing, video sharing, and the measurement of attention has made her a global authority on media effectiveness. Karen says... If there is no human paying attention to an ad, then there is no chance the message will get through, nor can it have any effect on business outcomes, sales, awareness, recall, message takeout, mental availability, upper, lower, or whatever other funnel you use to determine success. I find it hard to believe that people find this hard to believe. Welcome to the show, Karen. (laughs) Thanks for having me. That was a great intro. (laughs) I love that quote. I love it because they do find it hard. Um, Right. Seven quick fires for you, Karen. Mac or PC? Mac. No brainer. A silly Aussie stereotype. Neighbours or home and away? Oh, so funny. Home and away. Still watch it to this day. How embarrassing. (laughs) So does half my family that live in Sydney. They love it. Viral video props one here. So kittens or koalas? So that's difficult for me. I'm a cat person, but I live in Australia, so I am going koalas. Right, we could upset people here. Byron Sharp or Jenny Romanek? Oh, Jenny by far. Yeah, I love Jenny. <laughs> She's amazing. She's amazing. Uh, attention or impact? Well, you can't split those out. Attention's a precursor, so I'll go attention. Cool, two more. Micro-targeting or mass marketing? Oh, mass marketing. Nice, and finally, be different or be distinct? Uh, distinct. Easy. They were. They were good. They were, they were too easy. Uh, Karen, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. Go for it. We always like to celebrate the weird and often wonderful ways that guests find their way into their chosen career. So to kick things off, what was your first ever job? And then what was your first proper job? First ever job? I worked in a news agency, ironically, in the day where, you know, newspapers were sold through news agents. So I think I got my love for media then. So first job was media at news, news agent. So I don't know if that's the same where you live, but it's, yeah, where people come in and buy pens and papers and newspapers and magazines. Um, and then my proper job, my first ever proper job, also weird and ironic. It was, um, I was a, an advertising salesperson for News Corp. I think all good Australians have worked for Rupert Murdoch at some point, but that was a passion for me and I I really, really worked. I had a goal to work there and I loved every second of it. Oh, okay. So how long did you have that goal for? Because often what I find is people stumble into this industry a bit late and they, and they, they tend to take a really scenic route to get in. But it sounds like that you, you knew that's where you wanted to, to be. Oh, it's really funny because I read uh, I read one of the admin type books um, from the 80s um, and was captivated by creative and, and how it sort of, 
you know, how you can sell stuff through this thing called advertising. So I actually had a goal and it's a bit nerdy, but I was, I wrote it down and a goal to sort of make sure that I could one day be a representative for, for newspapers and sell ads in newspapers. And I think it's probably, you know, at least three or four years. So sort of from when I left high school um, through my early college days to when I left. Oh, wow. And and was part of that goal, did that involve any particular training at college or university or the like? Uh, no, I just did, I did general business. So economics, law, marketing, <laughs> that sort of stuff. So I did a general business degree, but I was always sort of fascinated. I don't know why. It's weird. <laughs> I am weird. <laughs> That's brilliant. Yeah. Um, and, and did you enjoy that then? Was it, was it everything you hoped it would be? Absolutely. So I... Uh, got I was the youngest ever sales team lead in News Corp. I think I was 23 by the time I was managing people three times my age. You know, maybe not three, maybe twice. They just looked old when I was 23. Yeah, they were three times. Yeah. Um, so I loved every second of it. I loved, you know, what ads could do for business. I loved being around print. I loved managing teams that were out selling something as fascinating as ad space yeah I loved I loved every second of it I worked for both of the newspapers here they were both owned by Rupert Murdoch at the time um yeah it was fantastic was it easier do you think to um sell media when it was more limited and it was just print before digital came and messed it up I mean, remember, this is the 90s, right? So 100% it was less fragmented. You know, we had some competitors and they were, you know, cinema, magazines, radio, TV. Um, But it was, you know, they all had their place. Um, CPM, increased CPM meant that you actually get more reach. (laughs) So it was a fantastic um, learning experience for me um, and, and definitely sort of shaped my future. And was it was it always about attention, even even as early as then, when it came to and explaining the value of media? Interesting, no. Um, so in those days, reach was attention, right? And like I said, it was not until a lot later that I realised that reach was certainly not that. Um, but um, in those days, in essence, it was that people saw this much reach meant this is how many people were looking at this particular preprint, for example. Um, so, but I didn't kind of quantify it in my own head. I mean, I was a kid. I didn't quantify it as attention. I just knew it was an opportunity to see and sort of, um, you know, and, and in those days, like I said, you know, if, if you had a higher reaching publication, it actually meant that it worked better. Yeah, no, it makes complete sense. So where did you go after that? Why, why did you change? Um, so I made a decision to broaden my, I look back and I just think, wow, I, I can't believe I even thought this way in my 20s. But I made a decision to get, I guess, more educated across the media ecosystem. So I did try cinema for a little while. I worked in radio also. Um, so I, I kind of did a few years outside of of newspapers just to sort of understand what the other media types were like. And then I made a decision to go brand side. So I worked for Diageo. Um, I was premium brand manager. And then I worked sort of for some big organisations in Australia um, on brand side. So I wanted to get some experience, I guess, sort of understanding in the marketing departments, um, you know, what it was like on that side versus, versus the media side. 
so it was it was a it was a great period of learning what is there anything you you found particularly interesting when you went via print cinema radio when you're effectively still dealing with something that everyone would you know broadly stick under the banner of media but obviously the 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 context around that media is so different well what's interesting is i vividly remember being trained this guy's name was tony somebody rather so long ago in cinema and the benefits of cinema versus some of the other um, media types and what I remember now is you know he talked about a lot of the the functionalities that I even talk about now so he talked about you know how cinema was you know there was very little um, distraction around you because you're sort of locked in and you know the screen's so large and it's hard to be distracted from that and you can't talk so you're not distracted from that and you know I honestly haven't rehearsed this, but, you know, you asking me these questions takes me back to that moment and I go, oh, my God, I learned all of that about what it takes for impact in, an, in, a, in a media sense um, right back in my mid-20s. So I think that was, you know, I didn't think about it at the time, but, but looking back I go, wow, that's actually quite an instrumental time really. Yeah, I had, I had the pleasure of speaking to the brilliant Paul Feldwick recently on the pod. And Paul, as I'm sure you well know, talks often about fame and how um, advertising, perhaps in the past more so than now, used to genuinely leak into culture. Um, and, I, and I think ads that drive fame, I wonder if there's any correlation with them linking back to cinema versus, say, print ads, because you're absolutely right. When you're in that context where you've got this amazing atmosphere, this huge screen, you're locked down, as you said, um, albeit in a really nice comfy chair, typically, you're going to be so much more receptive to the ad and it's going to be so much more of an experience and a shared experience with other people as opposed to, you know, some single micro-targeted piece of, of uh, digital that might be targeted towards you. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, what I know now, um, I look at it and I say, you know, the reality is more active attention. So that's, you know, people looking actually at the ads plays a greater role in memory retention and, you know, I wouldn't have been able to explain that then, but looking back, I kind of think that's exactly right. So the fame building comes from a time when there were few choices in our media day and we, you know, we spent more time in individual um, platforms reading the content, viewing the content, but also, you know, being around the ads rather than scrolling past them and not seeing them at all. I think it's also a combination of ad budgets as well, like, you know, there's a lot there's a longer tail now of advertisers that had you know in those days you you had to be a serious business to be able to advertise particularly on the video for for cinema and certainly on tv and to some degree premium press but now you know there's a longer tail of mum and dad businesses that advertise on on digital because it's it's more accessible for them so I think there's also the reality that you know a small business piece of content's pretty average by comparison. So I think it's a combination of things. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I think that obviously the barriers to entry, even for, for I don't know, something that might run in cinema, in theory, with the right creative, the production costs needn't be high at all, um, necessarily. When, when, you, when you then went brand side to Diageo, how did you, I'm assuming you did, but maybe you didn't, but how did you differ from people who had only experienced brand side because obviously you came in with this amazing lens of print cinema radio and different types of media was that something that most people seem to have brand side or or was that quite 
unique to you? It was actually quite unique. And what was interesting about that role was, you know, I learned about how big and small brands work. So Diageo at the time, you know, had some, I don't even know now, but, you know, they had everything from Solichnea to Johnny Walker down to really small sorts of, you know, pre-mix brands that no one would have ever heard of. So, so it was a great entry, I think, to understanding brand growth and brand decline, albeit I hadn't studied at Ehrenberg Bass at that point, but I could see it in, you know, the numbers and, you know, I could see that there were differences and really couldn't explain it. But what I loved about that job is they recognised that I was an analyst. So even though I was technically premium brand manager, I was also their sort of in-house analyst. So I had this this ability to sort of um, look at patterns even back then. So I was working alongside their senior analysts and they gave me all these analytical jobs to, and by this time I was you know, late 20s to 30, and um, I was able to sort of help, you know, sort of understand, you know, even even what trends were happening where other people couldn't read data. So it was at that job where I went, wow, I, I definitely have, I definitely have, I can see patterns. <laughs> Not dead people. I, yeah. Is that, is, but is that is that what first, where you realised that you were, you were interested in, I suppose not interested in measuring attention, but realising that you could measure attention and the different contexts around attention and what it is and what it isn't. Absolutely not. So, you know, <laughs> no. I'm look, You're asking me these questions now and I'm looking back and going, oh, my God, that actually is why I am who I am. No, I did not realise it at the time, but I will tell you what's next. So what's next was I had um, the opportunity, which is wonderful. I've got two beautiful 18-year-old boys, but... 18, 19, but all those years ago, I had a couple of children and, um, you know, it was a time when I had to be home for the boys and rather than sort of be dormant, if you like, for three, four years of my life and, you know, I love my kids, but I was always a bit of a learner. I thought, well, I should keep going. I should do another degree. I'd already done a master's degree. I was offered a PhD scholarship and in Australia that's great because they pay for not only the entire tuition but also you get a stipend so you get paid to do it and I was lucky enough to be offered a a position at Ehrenberg Bass and my choice of topic area was media but I still didn't really think you know put two and two together so it was during the 10 years at Ehrenberg Bass which made me think um, so my entire my, my research PhD was audience measurement with a focus on audience and or sorry media fragmentation and then through my postdoc you know, I was sort of engaged, I guess, by a few of the big brand sponsors of the Institute to sort of look at this thing called MRC, which, you know, at the time was fairly early and, you know, it was sort of doing their head in that 50% was enough. And my entire postdoc was looking at, oh, hang on, this new business called Facebook and what is this thing called viral and can I model this content diffusion and what does that actually look like? So so the, my point is... For the entire 10 years I was there, I was exposed to research that was in some ways myth-busting. It was very much looking at, is engagement real? Is is the MRC standard real? Is it valuable? Is it, you know, all, what, are, what are all these new platforms doing to the old school, which, you know, it used to be that CPM and Reach were commensurate with each other and 
you know, you pay more for better performance. And so through that whole time, it was really apparent that there was a real impression problem and a real audience measurement problem. And, and as the, within that 10 years, it just escalated. So it was at the end of the 10 years, I realised, actually, I, I need to look at what might work in the ecosystem outside of the current sort of viewability technology and then thought well look I, I, I know that like we said in the on intro you know humans need to pay attention for an ad to work so you know if 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 engagement on one platform looks different to an engagement on another what what is the measure that can transcend that and that is human attention so i made a decision to leave the university uh, put skin in the game, um, hired, you know, with my own money, a couple of devs to sort of help me understand how I could measure attention and sort of validate it against outcomes. And that's been my last five, six years. That sounds amazing. You mentioned um, you were myth busting. So so what were the first myths you managed to bust when you, when you did get skin in the game and set up? Oh, with a skin in the game? Well, the, the first one ever was actually 10 years ago to this day where in New York I stood during the Facebook IPO quiet period and uh, for the first two years of my postdoc I was monitoring, you know, this thing called likes was happening and I was monitoring some of the metrics that Facebook clearly had available for the public to monitor you know because every time there was a share or every time there was a like or every time there was a I can't even remember the measures then there was this little meter on the front of the page and I I started to to model that over time across the t- biggest 200 brands that relative to likes and the myth was <laughs> that you know you know, all these companies like Coke were on this full agenda to acquire likes when in actual fact most of the times likes were flippant and most people weren't going back to the brand. In fact, I, I published a paper, you know, less than 1% of a brand brand's likes, like I can't remember what they're called, followers or whatever at the time, go back to the brand in any given week and it went viral. Um, so that was the biggest one and, and you know, Fortunately or unfortunately, it was during the quiet period of their their IPO when they were about to head and it was so they couldn't respond. It just got hugely um, published. Um, and yeah, it was it was a massive, massive global wake up to uh, myth busting. But more recently in the business, um, you know, I went straight to viewability. So firstly, we wanted to validate that that attention was an important metric. Um, and we did that across multiple countries. We, to this day, our tech is extremely deep. We can drop into any country in any day. But the first one was really sort of going, is attention important enough to be different than what we already have? So the myth was really around this thing called, you know, the, the viewability gap, if you like, the viewability attention gap. And, you know, I, I pretty much only sort of recently published on it, but, um, you know, for the first few years, that was that was really the myth that I was trying to to sort of you know impart the big gaping hole between current measurement essentially and what you think the viewer has engaged with, but what you actually have had viewers engage with. And and was it frustrating for you to see uh, a huge audience of ad and and marketers 
make assumptions about what certain words mean because I'm not expecting you to uh, poke any particular you know social media companies for example I'm quite happy to myself so maybe I'll do that bit but Facebook measuring an impression as above zero pixels for above zero seconds versus what might have been considered the industry norm for example surely that makes all of these measures so ambiguous and so fluffy that it's really difficult to understand what any of it means yeah I mean look at the end of the day, the attention economy is here. So the metrics that they've used in the past, I think you call it out. Thank you. You can call it out. Um, but I, I agree. I think a lot of them weren't trusted. A lot of them were fluffy. Um, but, you know, they can't hide behind this economy that's right on us, which is that, you know, advertisers and agencies want to understand how much attention someone pays. So in fairness to them, you know, they've sort of come along for that journey and sort of understand that that is a, a, I won't say a currency because I think it's too soon for a currency, but it's certainly a metric that verifies audience viewing, that's for sure. So I don't know if that was a really political answer. No, no, that was a, that was a good one. It's a, it's, a fair, it's a fair answer. So, so, how, so how can marketers go about measuring attention and, and the different types of attention yeah I mean because the attention economy now is the you know 2022 thing I will say there's lots of vendors that are gaming the system which is a bit sad there's really only you know three or four of us in the world that do what we do which is actually film people viewing real actual Facebook TikTok Twitter snap etc and then there's this long tail of people that might have used goggles in one moment and pretend to sort of add it to their, you know, advanced viewability algorithms. Um, but, you know, if, if an advertiser wants to measure attention, they need humans to be able to do that um, and certainly continuous access to that kind of data. So so for me, um, and we're not so, – so there's also then there's two different sides of it, right? So there's people that do pre-testing, which is not really our game, um, and then there's those of us who do more around, you know, media planning and buying, which is kind of where we sit. So so if an advertiser wants to measure attention, they need to talk to their agency because um, a lot of the majority of the big holding co's are, are, sort, are certainly kind of on this whole attention economics drive and have access to different vendors that they use. I've, I've got a question here that I've written down and reading it back now, it, it actually reads like a really dumb question because the answer seems so clear, but I'm going to ask it anyway, um, which is how, how strong is the correlation between human attention and ad effectiveness? Oh, it's not a dumb question. I'm not even going to poke fun. Um, and the reason why I'm not is because it seems blooming obvious, but you'd be surprised. So We know that without attention, no impact can be gained, zero, right? We also know, particularly when you get below the surface, below the averages, we know that certain human behaviours, certain the way people view in terms of attention has a strong causal relationship, but it's not perfect. And the reason why it's not perfect is because it's also about the creative. So classic case in point. I pay 10 seconds of attention to an ad that has no branding. Do you think it's going to have an impact? No. So so, so we kind of say without attention, you have no chance. With attention, you have some chance. But then back to my favourite, which is Jenny, you know, she'll talk about distinctive assets and she'll talk about quality branding. So there's a whole 
And this is not about emotions or, you know, getting attention through emotions or anything like that. This is literally the science of impact from a creative perspective, which is, you know, if you don't have your brand on there, it's likely that it'll be misattributed to the bigger competitor. That's a double jeopardy effect. And we see that in our data. So I'm constantly asked, you know, what's the relationship between, you know, is attention important, which is why I sort of have a giggle now. And I show them often studies that we've done and show them if you don't pay attention, look what happens to your mental availability, look what happens to, you know, brand choice. It's zero. <laughs> we interrupt this podcast to announce that we will never interrupt this podcast with ads. Ads that awkwardly nudge you to contact the pod's host, Giles Edwards, on 01189 Only last week, some pod-listening companies did just that, calling for guidance on research and lead generation. But we're not asking you to do that. Anyway, back to the show. He told me to kill him. No. I am your father. Yeah, I had Yoda pinned for Luke's father. Anyway, hang on. Do you think it's fair to say that nowadays there's a shorter supply of attention because you often hear factoids like the human attention span is now shorter than a goldfish and all this this you know largely nonsense but do you see any truth in that are attention spans getting shorter or are they just more in demand firstly if you actually read up about the goldfish quote you'll see that it was taken out of context and there's no in true sense marketers have taken that and used it as a bible but it's not actually true but on the same token what we do see is there's a finite amount of attention so you know and and the the platform functionality plays a big role in that so if you build if you're if you've if you decide you want to go and build a social media platform and you build it with lots of clutter and lots of ability to scroll and flick and side swipe and talk to friends then you are going to set this baseline of inattention right so 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 we know we can predict how much attention someone's going to pay based on you know a number of factors um, that are both functional um, and also, you know, auditory and things like that, so visual and auditory and things like that. So um, I forgot the question. Uh, I was asking about attention spans. Oh, there you go. How funny is that? Crap, <laughs> I just lost my attention span. <laughs> um, so my attention span, so what we see is, you know, I mean, I don't want to give numbers away, but it's a, it's it's a lot less than you think it is in terms of these baselines that we see on all of these platforms. So... I think it's possible that it's not retracting. It's possible that it's always been like that, but there's very few of us in the world that can actually measure it. So, you know, we've moved, like I said, it's this is not viewability technology. I mean, a cracker is, you know, you, your, your viewability tracker, which is metadata that sits behind the platform, is basically saying, oh, yeah, yeah, view time on screen is 30 seconds, but actually they're holding their thumb to it so that it doesn't, go dark but they're talking to their friend right next to them so that's a classic example of the difference between viewability technology and attention technology we can see it so I'm not really sure I can answer has it changed because we've only been doing it for you know four years properly four five years properly Um, but we definitely know there's a big gap and and marketers would be surprised to know how little attention people do pay to their ads which is okay you just got to work with that yeah do you think typically um 
marketers struggle with the difference in context between the, the different media platforms. In that they think that each platform is equal? Yeah, or, or more or less equal. Hell yeah. I mean, if you saw this data that we collect, I mean, there are systematic sameness across all these. Like, it's, it's striking how the patterns form around all the different media types and how you know, you think that putting creative on platform A versus platform C is going to render you the same amount of attention because the creative is good. It's wrong. They're completely wrong. So, um, yeah, they're, they're, you know, this is the sort of data that we've been sort of productizing over the last couple of years that has shocked a lot of people to thinking, wow, we actually need indexes that can inform our reach and pl- um, reach and frequency planning and is that all does that all come under the same response or, or maybe meaning behind when you talk about not all reach being equal yeah it's not so you think about this like how many systems and models do we have where one impression is considered equal to another think of share of voice like I've been doing this stuff with Peter Field recently and you know his data from the IPA shows that you know the relationship between share of voice and share of um, market is diminishing. So the relationship's diminishing. And it is in line with advertising dollars going into platforms where, you know, you pay for one impression on that one and you get 20% active attention to an impression versus this one where you get 75% active attention to an impression. So, you know, absolutely. What um, is going to be difficult to give a simple single piece of advice to marketers out there to, to better understand attention but what advice can you give before we move to our listener questions to people looking into their ad budget and their media plans a single piece of advice that's difficult i think that the biggest piece of advice is you know if you accept that viewability metrics are your gold and not look into attention metrics you're doing a disservice to your procurement and to your bottom line because it's actually really easy to adjust. We call it attention adjustment, but it's really easy to sort of put media plans in, look at how many active attention seconds you would be expected to get, then make minor changes and go, oh, my God, I've doubled the amount of eyeball time, really. It's it's really quite simple. And, you know, I'm excited that the attention economy is – certainly going to be a big part of our measurement world. I mean, it's a perfect storm for it with, you know, the demise of cookies and all that sort of stuff. Um, But I'm also excited for brands. I'm excited that they'll kind of be more informed around, you know, and accepting of, you know, sometimes it's okay to refresh with lower active attention and other times it's about brand building. I just think it's an era for more effectiveness using this data. Yeah, and I'm pleased you mentioned the demise of cookies there. I recorded an episode last year with um, Andrew Spurrier Dawes, or ASD is easier to use his, his acronym. Oh, I'm KNF, so you have to call me KNF. Okay, cool. <laughs> KNF. I spoke to ASD Excellent. about PPC, funnily enough. <laughs> I should mention um, ASD is Global Digital Director at Wavemaker. And he's, his opinion is that paying for clicks is, is you know, a big part of the problem. However, how could you ever change that? But, but we, were, we were kind of leaning and flirting with the topics around ad fraud, et cetera, as well. So it wasn't necessarily a like-for-like conversation, but, but, but I do think um, 
I do think it was an interesting look point. I think there's a I think this year it'll be time for procurement to sort of be held accountable because you know I mean and and, and you know I've often said publicly that I don't think we're ready for a currency change as such because at the moment you know there are still some vendors using attention CPMs which I think will have an equal impact in a negative way to you know chasing the the lower CPM for more clicks um, but I think, you know, this year will be the year of procurement because the agencies are going to sort of put pressure on them to sort of go rethink the way you measure. Now, don't don't spend more, just spend better. Before I move to listen to questions, actually, I meant to bring this up earlier, but a very smart chap called David Porter. Has, oh, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah he's, he's now uh, part of your advisory board, as I understand it. it. And there was a lovely quote in the press release announcing announcing his um, position, which was amplified intelligence's work is a game changer for marketers who want to get to the truth. And I know amplified intelligence exists so that media trading or believes that media trading should be fair and accountable. And it, of course it should. And it's, it's such a simple goal, but I just wonder how simple it will be. But I, but I applaud the work that you do. There. Thank you. And, you know, I think the trick to it, you know, and, and this comes from our, I guess, academic heritage, is to make the entry to attention economics simple, not complicated, but rigorous as well. So, you know, we're, we're super fussy about uh, the nature of the models so that they are reliable, so that as people start to trust them, they can sort of see, you know, what it can do for their business. So, but on top of that, it it's a game changer because it's actually really bloody simple. You know, someone's got to see it before an ad has impact. So, so our whole kind of agenda is to make this complicated um, process of change into something that's less scary and easy to understand. Well, I've got a couple of listener questions for you, KNF. <laughs> so asking the general public for their opinion, be it on Brexit or boat names, is notoriously fraught with danger. Uh, but that's not stopped us. So George from Liverpool asks, what do you see as the biggest mistake marketers make today? Hmm, George from Liverpool, the biggest mistake that marketers have well, do today is, again, trust that what the currency they're paying for is delivering what they think it's paying for. So, you know, I often say that, you know, viewability measurement technology falls short of measuring human viewing but you know I, I say that at the end of the day human attention can't be measured in isolation of human viewing so I think that's the biggest mistake is not sort of trusting that advanced technology you know we, we, it's just the next iteration of it it's not a replacement of it, it's the next iteration of it so I think that's probably one of the biggest marketing mistakes. And question two is from Diane um, I know Diane she's based in London she said I hugely enjoyed your book on viral marketing. So I'd like to ask, why do you think the term viral has been so misused in marketing? And why are marketers so obsessed with short-term measurement? Does viral equal cheap in people's minds? Wow, Diane. So you must be my age because that book was published a long time ago. <laughs> um, yeah, um, I love that she read that. So that was an interesting book because I went into that thinking that, you know, if you put a cat on a skateboard that it will go viral. And the other end of the book came out with actually that's rubbish, the way that ads 
diffuse is more seeding up front and it's the opposite of what you think. So it's a terrible time to be talking about viral and, you know, um, epidemic in that sense. But the nature of a disease like we're having now is that you cough to, and then all of a sudden there's 3,000 people in your community that has it. That's that's viral, right? That's actual diffusion of of a virus. Whereas with content, it's the other way around. So you need 3,000 people for 10 people to, to on-share. So the actual curve is the opposite. So, you know, and at the time, it was this whole video player, I guess, sales gig to be able to sort of say, you know, if you build it, you'll get free reach. That's essentially what it was. And it's not that at all. It's it's a very opposite. Um, and why do marketers use terms like that? Because marketers, without thinking, <laughs> take on terms that best represent what they're trying to communicate. So, you know, that is a classic one. I don't think you were alone, by the way, or I don't think you, I don't think you would remain alone, even if today you thought that putting a cat on a skateboard would make something go viral i mean it's like i said before you could put a cat on a skateboard and it's the fluffiest cat you've ever seen but if no one sees the ad this fluffy cat is not going to be famous right but i but i do think diane also makes a good point there about viral equaling cheap in people's minds well it's it is it's about getting stuff for free and if you think about that time it was about you know that was when clicks and you know, fracking for attention in a sense through, you know, gamifying stuff was was a big, big thing. So, you know, I, th- I and it was the early days of the internet when, you know, people didn't really understand the reality of how humans interact with advertising. Cool. Great answers. Um, the final part of the interview then, then, Karen, is our four pertinent poses, starting with what advice would you give to your younger self? Wow, that's heavy. Um what advice would I give to my younger self? It's hard to fault, actually. It's hard to fault the routine that you took, actually, from these Well, it's, 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 it, it is. I mean, you know, I had to be with my boys for 10 years while they were growing. I couldn't have had the jobs that I've had, you know. I just think take a leap of faith earlier. So, you know, I'm a late bloomer in terms of our entrepreneurial, my entrepreneurial journey. So I think it would have been, but then, you know, I probably wouldn't have had the money to be able to fund it either. So... I guess my younger self would be a little bit about trusting my vision and entrepreneurial brain in the early days. There's also that thing where you think, if I took a leap of faith earlier, would I have had the experience and now to have, have, have made a success? That's right. I mean, it's a, you know. But who knows? I think I'm a, I'm a big fan of learning by failing. Well, you do a lot of that when you get to my age because it's a few years to have that experience. <laughs> I've done enough of it already. If you could banish one thing from the industry, what would it be and why? Attention vendors dressed up as attention, attention vendors that are advanced viewability, jumping in on the attention economy industry. <laughs> that bothers me. bothers me a lot. <laughs> Apart from both viral marketing and the attention economy, which is one of your other books, which we'll link to in this episode, and I, I highly recommend everyone reads. Um, are there any other books that you can recommend to our listeners? Well, look, not in this particular space, but if I can, my favourite book, I've got two favourite books. Um, one is Think Bigger. So for anyone who is in business, who you know has imposter syndrome and thinks they can, you know, f- fly higher, without a doubt, that one. And, and I guess in the other one, 
I love, love, love the story of Netflix and its beginnings and its pivoting. And I know these are business books, not marketing books, but brands can use these books and be inspired. So the the scale of innovation in um, It Will Not Work, I think it was called, or it, it was um, Reed, Hast- Reed Hastings, That Will Never Work, my absolute first love. It was an amazing book. I read it often. Now, we accept any flavour of book, even fiction, so that, that that's more. Oh, my God, so I don't even read fiction. How sad am I? Like, I no, I'm the same. Don't. I'm the same. I always promise oh. myself I will, and then I never do. I can't help it. I'm just enamoured by other people's stories and try and learn from it. Brilliant. Well, we'll also link to Think Bigger and That Will Never Work. But neither of those have come up before, actually. And as we record, this is episode 80, so... That's uh, that's rare. That makes me odd. <laughs> well, you said you were weird earlier, so there we go. Um, and then we, we always dedicate every episode to someone and we bestow or hospital pass that honour depending on your view to our guest who has to give their reason why. So would you kindly dedicate this episode? I might dedicate this episode to Bob Hoffman. Ooh. Yeah, who 10 years ago wrote about me in his blog and helped me with a voice for myth busting. Fantastic. Well, this episode is very proudly dedicated to Bob, Bob Hoffman. <laughs> Fantastic. So as a final call to action, everyone can head over to this episode. We'll share links to everything that we have. But how else can people get more Professor Karen Nelson field? Uh, so, you know, go to our website. I'm a huge LinkedIn fan. So user fan um so if you want to engage with me on linkedin as well do that personally i'm i'm pretty good with responding to people i just love learning from everyone amazing well we'll include a link to your linkedin profile well uh, thank you so much for for joining us it's been a massive pleasure and a real privilege to talk well super fun thanks for having me and finally thank you to everyone listening if you've enjoyed this episode please do share and review the pod keep the questions and guest requests coming in to get in touch it's easy to find gasp online you can check out cta pod on instagram or just email hello at calltoaction.co Try and I try and I try.